Hey, let's open our Bibles tonight to Matthew's Gospel. <clears throat> Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. Matthew 19. We left off talking about forgiveness last week. And what an important thing. Um, I gave you a kind of a little homework assignment, and that was to look back at Matthew chapter 6 and um, check out Jesus teaching that model prayer. I mean, he wasn't telling somebody to go ahead and pray these words. It's not like a mantra or something. We know that because he said that we're not to use vain repetitions, but there's some really cool things in Jesus' prayer. And the one thing that he took time to explain after... um, he finished teaching them to pray was the part about forgiveness. The rest of the prayer, notice he didn't go over it line by line. I mean, it's good for us too. But there's a couple of things that I learned from going through that prayer in Matthew chapter 6 this last week. One of them was, why did Jesus have to teach his disciples how to pray? They said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples how to pray? There's a couple of things that tells me. One is that It indicates that Jesus did a lot of his prayer in solitude. He would get away. He would go away to pray. It wasn't always public that he prayed. Otherwise, if it was all public prayers, they would know how to pray. They would just pray like he prayed. But at the end of this teaching, he goes over forgiveness once again. And and we covered that a little bit last week about the brother that sins against you and about forgiveness. And then, of course, Peter says, how many times? You know, how many times? And by the way, this was... For the same offense. How many times do I forgive my brother when he does the same offense over and over and over? And he thought by saying seven times that he was really stretching it, that the Lord was going to commend him and, and like, you know, okay, um, listen to Peter now, you guys, because the rabbi said three. That was what they taught. Three times you need to forgive. Peter said, seven, Lord? Should we forgive? What did Jesus say? Seventy times seven. So, with this in mind, okay, now I want you to look at chapter 19 and verse 1. You always want to kind of remember what we've, the teaching that we've come out of. Jesus is starting these kingdom teachings and he's teaching them about heaven. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him to test him. Now, when you see that, that they were trying to test him, um, you need to understand that the Pharisees weren't coming to learn from Jesus. They were coming to trap him, to trip him up. Because there was a danger that they were going to lose their position. Okay, And Jesus was a threat to them. We've seen this all the way through the Gospel. But just to refresh your memory... Pharisees came to test him and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay? Now, that's a valid question. That's a very valid question. Um, But I want you to notice how Jesus answers it. It's also valid for today. That's a valid question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Jesus says, haven't you read? 
Now, to say that to a Pharisee or a scribe or a teacher of the law is like slapping them in the face. In fact, it probably would be less of an insult to slap them in the face. If you say to these guys, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. What does Jesus do? He doesn't take them back to the Mosaic Law. He takes them all the way back to Genesis. He goes all the way back to the beginning. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning? So now what they're doing is, here's what what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to get Jesus to disagree with the Law of Moses. Because if they can do that, and they can get Jesus to disagree with the law of Moses publicly, what they're saying is, now we got him. Now we got him trapped. Because we all know that God gave the, the law to Moses on Sinai. We know that, God, that, the, that the law came from God to Moses. So they're asking him now, listen, listen how this goes. They, they really think they got Jesus. Verse 5 says, and he said, For this reason man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, Jesus is saying that's God's design. God's design is that there be one man, one woman, one marriage, one flesh. Now, there's a few ways that that happens. Um, the obvious one is when the 23 chromosomes from the male and the 23 chromosomes from the female come together and they have a child in marriage. That's obvious. One flesh from the two flesh. I mean, when I look at my children, you guys look at my children, it's pretty hard to deny them. I couldn't like leave them somewhere. They all look like me and they look like my wife. and that, they, they become one. So that's the obvious part. But there's a uniting... Even when children aren't involved, there's one, there's one flesh. Um, it says, back in the beginning, the man leaves his father and his mother and he's united to his wife or he cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh. So, they're no longer two. Okay, you get the idea? But one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now he goes, he doesn't go back to the Mosaic Law, he goes back to Genesis and he shows them this, okay? This is God's design. Why then, they ask, look at verse 7, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, now, now they bring in the contradiction. Okay, we got him now because Moses wrote that we can divorce our wives. Now, look at the last verse. I want to tie this together for you. Look at the last verse of chapter 18. It says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. Now, we know that the chapter divisions are not divinely inspired. Those came centuries after the scriptures were written. I'm glad we have them because it's really nice for me to be able to say to you tonight, turn to chapter 19 in Matthew's Gospel and you were all there. You're all with me. But I want you to know they weren't divinely inspired. They weren't put there um, divinely by God. When when the Scriptures were written, they weren't written in chapters and verses. Okay? So, understand that the Lord's tying this teaching back in. It's It's about the heart. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. Now look at how He answers these Pharisees. 
They're asking him, okay, then why did Moses command that a man give his wife's certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Now, you know, you know what that means when your heart is hard. Is that a good thing? That's not a good thing. Because of the hardening of your hearts, God, or Moses, not God, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now Jesus said this quite often. He would approach the, even in the crowds, he would approach the people and he would say, you've heard it said. And then he would explain the law. We saw that back in, uh, the Sermon on the Mount was uh, Matthew 5 through chapter, chapters 5 through 7. And Jesus said that quite often. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say unto you, if you even think it, you think about killing your brother, you've murdered him. You've heard it said, well, the reason why Jesus kept saying that was because the majority of these people weren't even able to read. So they would go and they would listen to the scriptures read and they would hear the teachings of the rabbis. But Jesus was taking the authority right from the throne of heaven. He would say, I tell you, I say to you. That's why many of the rabbis, many of the Pharisees, many of the scribes were so threatened by Jesus. Now he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness. And that's why when I do marriage counseling, now somebody would ask me, a couple would, would approach me and say, would you marry us? And I, the first thing I say is, well, I'm already married. And, and uh, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. The, the first thing I say is, I, I'm flattered that you would ask me to marry you. But in all reality, I can't say yes or no at this point. We have to enter into counseling. We'll, we'll, we'll counsel. We'll get together. I'm going to open up the scriptures. I'm going to show you what God's word says. And at that point, then we'll determine, you know, after we meet a few times, we get together three or four times, then I can answer that question, will you marry us? And, you know, people who desire God's will for their life think, wow, that's really cool. This is, you know, we've been looking for somebody. Like, but you would be surprised how many people say, ah, oh, never mind. You know, I want to know what, what, what God wants. There's hard questions to ask. Have you been married before? I mean, those questions come up in counseling. Yeah, we've been married and we're divorced. Okay, well, what what happened? Tell me what happened. Explain what happened. And there have been times, even in the third session or the fourth session, where something comes up. And and scripturally, I, I have to say, you know what? I'm sorry. I can't perform this wedding. I can't do this. And it's been really hard. So I've had people go away mad. Because what we put, so now I, I, when people come in for marriage counseling, I tell them straight up, if you already have a date and you already have a hall and you already got the band and you already got all, everything's all set, you know, maybe, maybe I, I'm not the guy. Because we really need to slow down here. Jesus said there's one reason. Well, there's one other reason, and that's death. Of course, death would free you from a marriage. You're no longer bound to that law if your spouse dies. So, but... Marital unfaithfulness. He's talking about unfaithfulness in the marriage. So, so I want you to think about this for a second. Now, there's different interpretations among the rabbis at this time, just like there would be different interpretations among different pastors and 
teachers and denominations and priests and so on. The liberal interpretation was for any reason at all. There were rabbis that just said, you know what, if your wife you know, cooks you meals and they're not hot, or they're not the way you like them, that's, that's, that's. The, the idea was, in the, according to the Mosaic Law, they had to find an uncleanness, uncleanness. But, and then you could put her away, is what they would say. Put her away with a bill of divorcement. But the liberal guys were saying, Every, anything goes. You can divorce. And notice he says, when they ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It wasn't lawful for a woman to divorce her husband for any reason. It was up to the man. But like I said, if his meals were cold or if, you know, whatever. The other rabbis, they knew that this had to do with moral uncleanness. And this is what Jesus was talking about. If there was marital unfaithfulness, if there was a breaking of the marriage covenant, okay? So, but Jesus goes back to the beginning, not to Sinai, he goes back to the beginning, explains that they're no longer two, but they're one. They become one flesh. So there's a, uh, this perfect combination of the 23 chromosomes each in, in, when children are involved. But he says, don't let any man break this covenant because the two are one now. You ever, you ever wondered why there's so much pain in divorce? Well, think about this. If the two become one, have you ever torn your flesh? You ever caught your flesh on you know, a nail or a, you know, just, you know, just torn? It's painful, isn't it? The two become one flesh and then you're going to tear them apart? You ever wonder why? It's such a painful thing. That's why. Now they're thinking, we got him because he's contradicting the, the law of Moses. But Jesus says it's because of your hard heart. It wasn't God's original plan. God's original plan was one marriage for life. Each child having a solid home, a mom and a dad, no divided families, no divorce, no broken homes, no blended families. But now think about this. Each one of us know those who have gone through this and the pain and the sorrow, and the bitterness, and the anger, and the resentment, and what happens? Generally toward God. You know, people become angry toward God. Caused by divorce. But understand this, it's not God's plan. That's not God's plan. Now, one exception, that's marital unfaithfulness. Jesus said there's one reason for divorce. Now look at what he says, and the disciples come after this. Um... He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hard hearts, but it wasn't this way from the beginning. And then he explains that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. But then his disciples come and they say to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Now, understand that there's a shifting of gears here. Because Jesus says, in verse 11, it says, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word. What word? Celibacy. That's what he's talking about. Now he's not talking about divorce anymore. The, the disciples changed the subject. Okay? This is kind of confusing when some people read this and they think he's still on you know, talking about divorce. But the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Now the issue is, do we stay single? Should we stay single then? Now, 
Here's a side study for you, because we don't have time to go into this tonight, but I want you to. I want you to look into this, okay? It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it's the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I suggest reading the whole chapter. But the Apostle Paul talks about celibacy. He talks about staying single in order to be able to devote yourself totally to the Lord, okay? But I want you to do that side study. Listen to what Jesus says about it. He says, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. To only those to whom it has been given. Now, I want you to understand that many um, monastic orders, in other words, the, the um, monasteries, uh, certain denominations, have, have really misinterpreted the meaning of this scripture and caused a lot of confusion and a lot of heartache and a lot of sorrow by p- making this a law and saying you have to be celibate. If you're going to serve the Lord, you have to be celibate. The Lord's not saying that. Listen to it again. Everyone, It says, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Now, it'll become a lot more clear to you when you look at Paul's passages as to why somebody would stay single, but listen to what Jesus is saying about it. Jesus does not say it's better. He doesn't say it's better. He's saying some can accept it and some can't. And if you can accept it, um, Paul talks about, you know, there's times of persecution and trial. There's times where you know you can devote your whole life to ministry. There's times where you have to perform certain services. There's times to that where you're going to meet special certain dangers, and it would be better for you to be single. You know he explains those things, but Jesus gives three examples. He says um, to those that are born incapable or indisposed to marriage, that would be uh, those that are physically incompetent. Okay, uh, persons that were rendered incapable would be the second one by others. There was um, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but there was a, a, mutil- a mutilation, mutilation that was very com- was a very common practice in those days for eunuchs. Um, and then thirdly, there were those uh, a person who to do God's work better or to be more devoted to the work of God chose to remain single. But understand it's a choice. And it may not necessarily, I mean, it may, it may be for a season. It may not necessarily be for you know, a person's whole lifetime. So the Lord's not saying one is better than the other. Okay, um, But there is an advantage, Paul says, to being free of the worldly cares and not having to... Um, I mean, I, I, I love, I dearly love my wife and children. But like Paul said, when you have a wife and children, you have other responsibilities. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm also a pastor. But, you know, then you start wearing all these hats, and it's like, okay, well, where do you draw the lines? Where do you, you know? So it's, it, it's tough, okay? So you understand that uh, um, marriage is optional. Jesus isn't telling the disciples you all got to be married and he's not telling them you all got to be single. So that's hopefully what we get out of this. Plus, do that study in 1 Corinthians 7 and, and I think the Lord will really bless you. 
Then, he, then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands upon them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Now, picture this. The guys are, the disciples are going, they're thinking they're doing Jesus a favor by keeping these pesty kids away. <laughs> and Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We saw Jesus taking a child and putting him in the midst and saying, unless you become like one of these little children, you can't enter the kingdom. What was he talking about? Well, the simplicity and the humility of a child is awesome to watch. It's really cool to watch. As a matter of fact, you heard my little uh, nine-year-old daughter praying for her friend at school. This came up one day, and she came home and she said, Dad, uh, my friend uh, Haley came to school and said, I can't be a Christian because Jolie's been sharing the Lord with her little friends and, and much like, uh, like Amanda does in, at school. And these kids come home. They lead, they lead their friends to, school, to, to Christ in school. I mean, it's incredible. Dad, pray for so-and-so. He prayed and accepted the Lord today. you know. And, and, but anyway, she came home and she said, um, Miss Haley said, I can't accept the Lord because I went home and you know, talked to my mom and dad about it. And they said, well, you're just a little kid. And so I said, Jolie, go get your Bible. So she went and got her Bible, and I took her to this portion of Scripture, and I said, look, I said, the disciples are trying to keep the kids away. And Jesus said, no, let them come to me. I said, what does the Word of God say? She says, it's okay to come to Jesus, even if you're a little kid. And I said, yeah. And so she took her Bible to school the next day and showed, hey, right here. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Jesus was personal. He, he, his ministry wasn't so big that he didn't have time for the little kids or for the, you know, I love that. Those are some of the things I learned from, from Gail Irwin. When you see me running out here and getting tackled by the kids and, you know, <laughs> coming in all full of grass stains and stuff, you know, they love it. I think we should all be like that. We should be able to, you know, stoop down, crawl on the floor with them. Get the, that's like the kids downstairs. You want to have fun? Go downstairs sometimes to children's church and just roll around with these guys on the floor. I'll tell you. Jesus did that. I believe he did that. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, if, if you're reading a King James tonight, really it says, it says Good Master, now think about this. He says, teacher, good master, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now we know people like this. You have people in your lives like this. I call them, the mo this would be the moralist. This would be the person who thinks, if I do the right things, if I go through the right steps, if I do the right things, go through the right motions, I'm going to heaven. Okay? These are people who think they can earn their way or they can obtain God's blessing. Somehow, something I do or say, I can obtain God's blessing. You know that the Bible refers to eternal life as the gift of eternal life? You can't purchase a gift. You can't earn a gift. If it's earned, it's a wage. Listen to this. What, do I do? what, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus answers... Why do you, and it says in the King James, why do you call me good? <laughs> but the NIV says, why do you ask me about what is good? 
Literally, why do you call me good? There is only one good. That's what Jesus said. There's only one good. Now, Jesus is saying one of two things. There's only one good. That's God. He's the only one good. Now, what's Jesus saying here? One of two things. He's either saying, I'm not good, or he's saying, I'm God. There's no two ways. To, I mean, there's no other way to look at this. This is really a, a, a claim to deity. But listen carefully. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, "There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments." Now watch where this is going, because at first read you're going, "Wait a minute!" Jesus is saying we can we can get eternal life by obeying the commandments. No, listen carefully. Which ones? The man inquired. Okay, which ones? <laughs> Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you notice something about this portion of Scripture and these commands that Jesus gave to this guy, they're all from the second tablet. They're all from the second. Remember, there were two tablets that God gave Moses upon Mount Sinai? And the first set of tablets, I mean, the first tablet was all about God's relationship with man or man's relationship with God. The second tablet was man's relationship to man. Now, all of these that he read was about man's relationship to man. He didn't say anything about Man's relationship to God. Turn there for a second. Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 20. This is incredible. Exodus chapter 20. There's, there's two tablets. The first one pertained to man's relationship to God. The second one pertains to man's relationship to man. All right? The first four commandments were all about man's relationship to God. Listen to him. Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Here's the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. I can't help but thinking of Cecil B. DeMille at this point, and the lightning and the, all that. That's cool. Um, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow to them or worship them. This is all part of the second commandment here. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands, my commandments. Then... Number three, verse seven. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And then here's the fourth commandment, chapter or verse eight, chapter twenty. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son nor daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals or the alien within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now he gets into the, the second tablet, which is the, uh, the commands 5 through 10, which these are the ones that he told this man when he said, what do I have to do? And listen to these. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land. The Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not have false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, two tablets, one about man's relationship to God, one about man's relationship to man, and the Lord only covers the second one. Now look at the guy's next question. He tells him, he tells him this. All these things, we're back in Matthew 19, verse 20, all these things I have kept, this man says. Now, pertaining to the second tablet, this guy says, I've kept them all. Everything that you've just said, I've done all that. The young man said that. What do I still lack? All right? Do you understand? This man was conscious that he was still lacking something. He's lacking something. I've done all these things. Everything that you said there, I've done all that. No, here's what the Lord does. I want you, you need to understand this because Jesus, it says, then Jesus said, Jesus answered, verse 21, if you want to be perfect, okay, Jesus looks right into this guy's heart, you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, how do you gain entrance to the kingdom? By selling all the things that you possess? No. By following Jesus. There's your key. But he looks at this one guy. What's causing this one guy not to follow Jesus? His material possessions. Jesus looks right into his heart and says, here's what's troubling you. You want to be perfect? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. The key is following Jesus. But the problem why he can't follow Jesus is because he's clinging to all this stuff. This man's God was his riches. I want you to understand because this isn't some kind of universal law that Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to follow me, you've got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. This was a command to this man because his God was his materialism. Now listen. What's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, get rid of the false gods and come and follow me. Selling all that you have and giving it to the poor is not a requirement for every person to have eternal life. Following Jesus is. If you're not following Jesus, you don't have eternal life. That's the key. Now, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Oh, you know what that's called? Idolatry. Anything that you put before God is an idol, an idol. It's a little easier to understand if you call it an I, me, my doll. Then you get the picture. You start thinking, oh, okay, well, I know what that, because we don't have idols. I mean, we don't, you'd go, well, I don't have idols. We're not like, we're not into Hinduism. I mean, they have idols, real ones. But I don't have an idol. Oh, really? How many times? Do we polish our image? How many times are we concerned about our image from other people? Oh, polishing my image? What is that? That's idolatry. 
And the Lord is saying, now listen, come follow me. Whatever stand in the way, come follow me. Then, then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now I've heard the stories about, you know, there's this gate and, and, and the wall of Jerusalem and, you know, it's a, it's a smaller gate. It's easy for a human to get through, but it'd be hard for a camel to get through and you have to strip everything off them and it's hard for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. I've been to Israel several times. I've been to, there is no gate called the eye of a needle. There is nothing that resembles an eye of a needle. Jesus was saying it's, it's, what he was saying is exactly what he says. I tell you again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a, of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He meant what he said. He's talking about, now you can get a camel through the eye of a needle, you just got to grind him up real fine. <laughs> but that's not what he's talking about either. Listen, because they asked him when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. God can even get a camel through an eye of a needle. No, he can get a rich man to heaven. If a, I know a lot of rich people that are on their way to heaven. Why? Because they're rich? No, because they love Jesus. <laughs> you know? It's not about what you make. Not about how much or how little. With God, all things are possible. And Peter answered him. Now listen, Peter still has this this idea. Not just Peter, the rest of the disciples too. Peter was just the spokesman for these guys, but... These guys have this idea that's really that, that God's kingdom, his, his kingdom, is like man's kingdom. Now, in man's kingdom, things are really different. And Jesus is trying to, these kingdom parables really tell the, the story. Listen to this. Peter answered, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, I'm thinking about all that Peter left to follow Jesus. I like fishing. I love fishing. But I mean, what did Peter leave, really, to follow Jesus? And what is Peter going to inherit as a result of following Jesus? I mean, you think about it. It's like this world, what does this, ha- what does this world have to offer us? Paul says nothing. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul says, when I came to you, he says, I claim to know nothing except Christ crucified and Him risen from the dead. Everything else was dung to him. Refuse. Nothing, this world has nothing. But Peter asks the question, so Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, and if you're one who makes little notes in your Bible or underlines or highlights or circle that, highlight that, at the renewal of all things, because that's what Jesus is going to talk about now. He's going to talk about the kingdom, his kingdom, not the earthly kingdom, his, his kingdom. Okay? He does establish his kingdom on earth, and, he, and there is a literal reign of Christ on the earth, but he's talking about God's kingdom here. He's going to tell us a story about it. He says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now we read that, didn't we, in our study in, in Revelation. It's very important when you get into Revelation to understand who those twenty-four elders are who they represent. When you look at what they're wearing, when you look at where they're sitting, when you look at what their assignments are, you know clearly who those are. 
But he says, these 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Now, this, this little saying here, the first will be last and the last will be first, causes a lot of confusion in a lot of places. I want you to understand that when the gospel first went out, I want you to understand that Christianity really came um, from the Lord, first of all, to the Jews. It first went to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Now, if you look at the whole scheme of things, you'll understand that the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first. It's not what you think. The Lord is saying, it's not, it's not what you're thinking. Okay? When you look at the whole picture from Genesis to Revelation, you understand that the Lord went first to the Jews. He, they rejected Him. So He turned to the church. But the Bible says He's going to turn back to them again. And they will be restored. And they will be... I mean, there's, there will come a time when they, even in Jerusalem where it says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, actually 12 and 13, it talks about them recognizing the one that they pierced and mourning for him as an only son. Now look at those things. But the first will be last, the last will be first. Now keep that in mind for a second and listen to this parable because Jesus tells a kingdom parable here. He says, four. Now keeping that in mind, first will be last, the last will be first. Four. The kingdom kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. Now, he's trying to draw us a picture here. This is what parables are. Parable comes from two Greek words, para, which means alongside, and bolo, which means to throw. So Jesus is going to throw alongside something they understand, a vineyard. He's going to throw a picture now of something spiritual or heavenly to give him an example. And he says... He says, this landowner went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day. And he sent them into his vineyard. Now, that was an average day's wage, so fill in the blank, whatever that would be worth today. He says, this is what I'm going to give you. And about the third hour, that would be 9 a.m., he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. Make note of that. Standing in the marketplace doing nothing. Now this is a picture of the Lord going out and hiring these people or taking these people in. I want you to understand, if you're not working for Jesus, believer, if you're not working for Jesus, you're like the guy standing around doing nothing. All right? The only thing that's going to remain is what we've done in Christ. So just, just keep that in mind. He says, about the third hour he went out, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, and he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about the sixth hour, that'd be noon, and the ninth hour, that'd be 3 p.m. And he did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and he found some still standing around, others still standing around. This is like 5 p.m. Now all day long, I mean, he's picking up these people, he takes them out, they're working in the vineyard. And, and so 5 p.m. now. And he asks them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Again, if you're not working for Jesus, it's for nothing. Because 
No one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. And then when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Now, before we go on, remember what this is a picture of? Jesus said, This is what, this is what the kingdom's like. This is what's going to be like coming into the kingdom of heaven. He says, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now, generally, I mean, in a kingdom here, that's not the way it's done. Usually the guys that did the work first get paid first, and the guys who did the work last get paid last, and it's just the way we do things. But the Lord says, no, not necessarily. It's not what you're thinking. Verse 9, the workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. Now what's that a picture of? If it's not the grace of God. What's the, that's the grace of God that he would give those that came at the 11th hour the same as he, God's grace. Do you ever have somebody get upset about God's grace? We can't do that. God can't do that. God can't forgive Charles Manson. What do you mean? God can't forgive some mass murderer. God can't for, you know. Do you realize that in the last couple of months, we saw two people come to know Jesus on their deathbed? You know, I come home going, what's up with that, Lord? <laughs> you know, I want to go home. <laughs> you know, I've been working and be careful, be careful. You know, don't ever murmur or grumble about God's grace. God's being gracious to these people. And so when they came to those who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received the denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. We see this when we go over to Israel and we witness to people. We share the gospel. We were over there during 9-11 and got to share with some of the guys in the military. And it was, you could see, remember the Apostle Paul talked about the believers provoking the Israelites to jealousy, the Hebrew people to jealousy. You could see it. They're like, hey, wait a minute. You mean, you mean, you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Wait a minute. What's up with that? You know, you could see, you could see it. And here it says, then these men who were hired last worked only one hour, and they, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man, if I, I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, he, he doesn't even drop it yet. It comes up again. But I mean, he's giving you this picture like, you know what, the kingdom of heaven isn't like the kingdom on earth. It's not the same. Peter, stop making these comparisons. Stop saying, oh, you know, we've left everything and we get, you know. Now watch what happens. Jesus gets their focus back. He gets, oh, by the way, in the, in, in the uh, King James, after it says the last will be first, the first will be last, it says, for, for many are called, but few are chosen. Wow. So, as we serve the Lord in His vineyard, I want you to note that it's the Master who sends us out to work. Some work a long time, some work a short time. But 
the end of the road, even at the end of the road, it's not too late. We just saw that. Like I said, in the last couple months, we saw a couple people come to the Lord on their deathbed. When they heard the gospel, I had one guy say, I said, have you ever heard this? I took him back to the Exodus and I showed him the, 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 the uh, actually the Passover. I showed him the Passover, putting the blood on the door and how the death angel had to pass over. And I told the guy, I said, you, you have an appointment with the death angel. I said, but there's a Savior, Jesus, who was the Passover lamb. And I explained the, 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 the gospel to him. Jesus' sinless life is death, burial, and resurrection. And I said, have you ever heard that? Now, this guy was, went to church all his life. He never heard the gospel. Not like that. I said, you want to pray and, and ask Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord? And he said, yeah. You know what I mean? Even at the end of the road, it's, it's not. It's not too late. Now, Jesus says in verse 17, he was going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside. So now understand that what he's about to say is, is privately to his 12. These guys were handpicked. And he says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they'll condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and on the third day he'll be raised to life. Now, picture this. This has to this is Jesus said this back in Matthew sixteen twenty one, he said it in seventeen nine, he said it in seventeen twenty two. Now here we are in chapter twenty, verse eighteen. He keeps telling them over and over, Here's the plan, guys. Your idea for me as Messiah is not God's idea for me as Messiah. You need to understand. Remember the rebuke that of Peter, get thee behind me. You don't have your, th your heart set on the things of God, but on the things of men. So he tells him again, I'm going to have to go through this. And then, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Somebody tell me who that is. Who's, who are Zebedee's sons? James and John, yeah. Sons of thunder. And, and as I read this portion of scripture here, I think it was mom that was thunder. Listen to this. <laughs> Sons of Thunder. They always call them Zebedee's sons, but Mama was kind of thunderous here. Listen. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. Kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. Picture this little Jewish mom coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I have a favor to ask of you. What, what is it you want, he asked. And she said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. For starters, Jesus says, you, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. When Jesus entered his kingdom, there were two guys, one on either side of him, one at his right and one at his left. They were being crucified. And by the way, Salome, who this is, this is Salome, Zebedee's wife, is one of those that was at the foot of the cross. Can you imagine her looking up at the cross and seeing Jesus hanging there with a guy on his right and his left? Saying, boy, am I glad Jesus didn't answer that prayer. Those would have been my two boys. Now, look at Jesus' response. He says, you don't know what you're asking. And then, he, not to her, but to the boys, <laughs> obviously, because Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Jump over quickly, Matthew chapter 26. I want to show you the cup. I want to show you what Jesus is referring to. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Look at verse uh, chapter 26 
and verse 36. I'm just going to read a few verses here so you get a picture of this cup Jesus is talking about. This is, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. In the Hebrew, that means olive press. So, talk about being under pressure. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and I pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, okay, James and John, along with them, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Do you understand what cup he was talking about? He asks these guys, Can you drink the cup that I'm about to ha- that I have to drink? And then he went away and a second time well then he, he returned to his disciples, found him sleeping. Could you could you men not watch with me for one hour? And he asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. All right, now you know what the cup is. Well, let's go back there. Matthew chapter 19, he says, Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now when the ten heard about this, they were indignant. They got upset because they thought these guys were trying to get, you know, jockey for position, okay? So they got indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, and that's of course a reference to himself, that's what he refers to himself, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, in closing, I'm going to leave it there. We're going to pick up with verse 29 next week. But I want you to understand that many things in God's kingdom, they don't make sense to us because we look at things by the world's standards. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 those are the Gentile kingdoms. That's the way they build stuff. They lord it over each other. They step on each other. They get to the top and this pyramid thing. And, and But that's not the way my kingdom is. Remember John chapter 13? What did Jesus do? To show him the full extent of his love, he wraps a towel around his waist, pours water into a basin, and starts washing their feet. And then he tells them, now that you've seen what I've done, you'll be blessed if you do the same. Serve each other. Because in the kingdom... It's not the one that sits on the throne that's the greatest. It's the servant of all. And he said, I've given this example. I've come and given my life to be a ransom for many. But what about this deal where Jesus says, He says to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. Let's close with this. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And, and, and I'm just going to give you a start here. You can, you can look into this yourself. Verse 1 Acts chapter 12. 
I love hearing those pages turn. That's one of the coolest things about these studies is that you're all there. In fact, a couple of Sunday mornings ago, I was having, I was struggling with a verse, and and somebody just finally called it out, and I went, "Thank you," and because I was reading, it said um, I am instead, and I was reading M I, and I couldn't make sense of it, and I was really struggling. And somebody read it, and I went, "Wow, isn't that cool? I mean, you guys, you have it right in front of you. You don't have to take my word for it. I can't mess it up. It's right there, you know. But look at Acts chapter twelve and verse one. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John. Oh, isn't that the one that Jesus just warned was going to have to drink from the cup that he drank from? Listen to what happens. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. You see, James was beheaded. And Jesus was telling them, even beforehand, you know what? You are going to suffer a death, a martyr's death. They are going to kill you too. This is, by the way, this is about 10 years later, after Jesus died. But, you know, Jesus was able to look into, he, he wasn't bound by time. He was, he was, you know, literally could tell them what was going to happen, and he prophesied these things. And John too. I mean, tradition tells us that they tried boiling John in oil. And when it didn't work, they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. And he's the one that wrote the, the Revelation. After he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 3rd John, he was actually pastoring in Ephesus. But, I mean, how cool for Jesus to say to James and John, the sons of Zebedee, yeah, you know what? You are going to suffer. But, in fact, John, I think, was the only one that, that died of old age. He didn't die a martyr's death. But James was beheaded. It's like John the Baptist. And so in looking at this and all the things that the Lord has shown us tonight in His Word, I'm so grateful that God has preserved this for, the, for, for us to study and to read. We are so privileged to be able to open God's Word. And you don't need me to teach you. You can open this at your breakfast table or, or in the evening when you go home. And you can pray and say, Lord, I need your Spirit to teach me and lead me and guide me in the truth. I mean, it's neat to get together collectively, but I pray that this is not the only time you guys eat. You know, try eating one meal a week, physically. See how that goes. Doesn't work, does it? So I, I, I just want to encourage you to be in the Word, be in fellowship, be in, in prayer, break bread together, and just let the Lord show us and teach us and lead us and guide us. Father, thank you so much for this time together. I pray that we could just uh, really glean from the things that you've shown us tonight, Father, and, and apply to our lives your Word. And I pray for those that have decisions to make, Lord, in their lives, whether they're big or small. God, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. I pray that you just continue to teach us, train us, disciple us, because we don't want to be like those standing around in the marketplace idly, not working. Lord, we just we want to be about your business. But we know that that's not how we get to heaven. Thank you, Lord, for your son Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit. And we ask that now as we leave this place, Lord, could you use us? Would you open a door for us that we might get to share the good news of your grace, the good news of your kingdom with somebody? Lord, please open a door that we could just point somebody to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.